You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 138 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. For I guess the last six months or so of this podcast, you might have noticed, if you are a regular listener, that I often ask my guests what they think of the afterlife. Another thread that I often touch upon in this podcast is the mystery of consciousness and reality and mind. And with that in mind, today's episode, I have the perfect guest, Dr. Eben Alexander. And Dr. Alexander is an academic neurosurgeon that for over 25 years uh, worked at different places, such as the Brigham Women's Hospital, Children's Hospital, and Harvard Medical School in Boston. And he has a passionate interest in physics and cosmology and is the author of the New York Times number one bestseller, Proof of Heaven and the Map of Heaven. In 2008, Dr. Alexander was driven into coma by a rare and mysterious illness of unknown cause. He spent a week in coma on a ventilator, his prospects for survival diminishing rapidly. But on the seventh day, to the surprise of everyone, Dr. Eben Alexander started to wake up. So thanks for being on the podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Could you please tell the listeners uh, briefly who you are and what you do? Yes, I'm Eben Alexander, MD. I'm a neurosurgeon and uh, author uh, of several books. Uh, I wrote Proof of Heaven back in 2012 about a near-death experience that I had in 2008. Um, and it's <clears throat> it was a near-death experience that was really kind of shocking, given my experience uh, as a neurosurgeon, mainly because it involved um, a severe case of gram-negative bacterial meningitis, uh, <clears throat> which really should have disabled all but the most rudimentary of conscious experiences, <clears throat> as my doctors knew full well from my uh, scans and neurologic exams and all that. And yet I had this uh, incredibly robust and ultra-real experience deep in coma when my entire neocortex was heavily damaged. And when I came back to this world, uh, at the end of a week in coma, uh, all of my memories of life before had been uh, erased, although they came back very rapidly. And that was the thing that was so shocking to my doctors. Now, of course, I had no idea how ill I had been. And all my knowledge of brain, mind and consciousness had been temporarily deleted during the coma. So when I came back to this world, all I knew was this extraordinary spiritual journey <clears throat> that I described in the book Proof of Heaven. And it was only over the next two months or so that all of my prior memories came back. And as I went back to the hospital, talking with my doctors, going through my medical records and scans, we came to realize that there was no way I could have had any kind of uh, conscious experience like that. And that's where the mystery began. 
And that is something that I go into in Proof of Heaven and then in my second book, The Map of Heaven. And uh, coming out in a month, it will be uh, really the third book about this uh, extraordinary <clears throat> set of uh, events. And that book is entitled Living in a Mindful Universe, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Heart of Consciousness out in October of 2017. But it's all about a shifting idea about our notion of consciousness and the nature of reality. And that's why I think this world is waking up to this much deeper truth about how the world works that uh, is the subject of these books. With all uh, these things, science always tries to find proof. But it's the problem is, I guess, the proof is having the experience, but you can't really force such an experience you just have to wait till you have it i guess because how did you think about near-death experiences before you had one yourself <clears throat> well before my coma i had um, come along in a pretty traditional conventional neuroscientific uh, background and and i fully bought into the party line that you know the physical brain creates consciousness and uh, that's really where we, we start running into difficulty. And it has to do with our fundamental uh, assumptions. Now, <clears throat> before coma, believing that brain creates consciousness and that our existence is birth to death and nothing more, I would have told you that near-death experiences are simply hallucinations. They're tricks of the dying brain. Uh, and that would have been the end of the discussion for me. And that's why, of course, <clears throat> the evidence in my own experience was so powerful and convincing that that explanation doesn't work at all uh, because of this incredibly robust conscious experience. And that's why this discussion is so interesting. It's really about the fundamental nature of reality, of, of things like space and time and mass and energy and all of causality. And our conventional materialist model uh, fails uh, really around the issue of consciousness itself. <clears throat> the physicalist notion that the brain creates consciousness uh, has never really gotten anywhere at all. And that's why I think this uh, awakening that is really inspired uh, in many ways by near-death experiences and similar spiritually transformative experiences is so important. Now, another point I would make in answering your question uh, concerns the fact of how can we come to know this? Now, of course, I came to know it through this extraordinary near-death experience with a miraculous recovery from gram-negative bacterial meningitis that none of my doctors would have predicted as possible. And yet it did happen. Uh, but what I often tell people these days is you, as a conscious being, you don't have to wait to be smoked down by some illness like uh, meningitis or uh, be struck by a truck or something like that and have a near-death experience. By being a conscious being, you can go within consciousness. And this is why so much of my work today in spreading this message, uh, and this is a message that uh, certainly penetrates deeply in the near-death uh, experience community, is that you can cultivate this, that any sentient being can come to know these truths by going within consciousness. Because the big model that is taking over the scientific world about the mind-brain relationship now is one in which we're not looking to the physical brain to produce consciousness, because again, nobody's ever got anywhere with that kind of thinking. Uh, but actually, what we call the filter theory, which presumes that uh, consciousness is fundamental in the universe, that the entire Big Bang and all the observable universe is contained within consciousness itself. 
not the other way around. And when you realize that and realize the brain is actually a filter that allows in that primordial consciousness uh, to some limited degree, then everything can start to make much more sense. And that's what opens the door to things like the afterlife and reincarnation and all the other stunning implications of what consciousness studies reveal today uh, is that uh, our consciousness is a far uh, deeper mystery. And in fact, I would say in many ways it should be viewed as the only thing that exists as consciousness. And then we can start to make much more sense of, of human experience. And that is the awakening that NDEs are bringing to the scientific world today all around the phenomenon of consciousness itself. Now, the going within that I mentioned, the, the sentient being exploring deep within consciousness to come to know these truths without requiring a near-death experience, um, one of the tools that we often discuss is that of sacred acoustics. And people who are interested should visit sacredacoustics.com and uh, you can download a free 20-minute OM file, listen with headphones, and you'll start seeing what we're talking about. But it's the use of differential sound frequency brain entrainment to get into very deep transcendental conscious states. And that's how the sacred acoustics is, is so magical. And for those who don't already have a practice of meditation, uh, a regular way of going within, I think sacred acoustics offers a very valuable tool and a lot of important lessons on that website uh, available to help people get into deep meditation. You mentioned that you forgot who you used to be when you came out of the coma, but when you were inside the coma in in that other realm, I guess you could say, did you remember then who you were? No, that's actually one of the more interesting facets of my NDE. Um, <clears throat> it's one of the things that makes it uh, different from most NDEs, uh, and that is the fact that I was completely amnesic for the life of Eben Alexander before coma. I did not, within coma, I did not even have a memory of any words or language, anything about this universe or being a human being on planet Earth. Every bit of that was deleted. I was really, um, <clears throat> had a completely empty slate, which became very uh, uh, evident later as one of the crucial aspects of my journey was the fact that I had no memory of my life before And that's what allowed some of the most uh, profound lessons to unfold. This is something I go into in Proof of Heaven and the Map of Heaven, was that amnesia was very uh, crucial to discovering some of the lessons because uh, otherwise I would have defaulted to my simplistic and false worldview that you only see what you want to see on the way out. So it was very important for me to have that amnesia so that the uh, encounters and events and, and uh, entities that I encountered on that journey could be very helpful to me in learning the lessons of the journey as opposed to simply defaulting to, oh, I guess it was a trick of the dying brain. And that's why that amnesia was such a crucial ingredient. And of course, initially when I came back to this world, uh, words and language came back very quickly, literally within hours and days, most of my language had returned. Childhood memories, came back within a few weeks. And then all that extensive knowledge of neurosurgery, of physics, chemistry, biology that I'd learned over 54 years of, of, of life, of living that scientific materialist worldview, all of that came back over about eight months. And as it did, it was blended with this incredible mystery of well, how in the world did this happen? Because as I went back for follow-up visits with my doctors, was discussing my 
neurologic exams, discussing the scans uh, and looking at them with uh, my colleagues, we were just so mystified that anything could happen because the evidence of damage to my neocortex was so extensive that I could not have had any kind of hallucination or dream or drug effect um, from uh, you know, this experience because my neocortex was too damaged. And all of our modern neuroscientific models of consciousness <clears throat> postulate that the neocortex is the most powerful calculator in the human brain must be involved in all the details of conscious awareness. And yet my neocortex was too wiped out to do that. And that was the astonishing revelation in the months after my coma well, was putting all that together as all of my memories came back. You were in this coma for a week, but how long were you in this other realm or you you call it heaven? How long were you there? How, do, how long did it feel like? Well, when I came back to this world, if you had asked me in those first few days, how, you know, how long were you there? I would have answered months or years. It seemed like a very extensive odyssey uh, with a tremendous amount of of uh, content and events and <clears throat> traversal of these various spiritual realms that I would cycle through over and over again. Um, and yet it had to happen, in fact, within five Earth days, between days one and five of coma, Uh, which was evident to me because of many of the clues of the events and who I encountered. For example, there were six faces that were apparent to me at the very end of the coma experience. And these were of people who were physically present in the ICU room in the last 24 hours of coma. And there were many other family and friends who had been there earlier in the week who I had no memory of whatsoever. So in fact, those memories from within coma helped to uh, provide the evidence that the entire experience happened mainly between days one and five of coma, even though it was a set of events that seemed to go on for months or years. And did you consciously like leave or did somebody tell you to leave or did you die in that world and came back? How, how was the ending? Uh, the entire journey was, it started in, I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive course on responsive realm. And then <clears throat> that uh, led up to a beautiful spinning portal of light into a rich ultra real valley. Uh, and all this I describe in great detail in the book, uh, then followed uh, by uh, ascendance through uh, <clears throat> the mu music of angelic choirs and all that into the, the oneness of the, of the core realm. Um, and I would cycle through those those multiple realms many times. Uh, and then finally, there came a point where I was no longer able to use the musical notes of the melody to conjure up that portal to access those realms. And that was when I was aware of all the beings around me praying and then the awareness of the six faces. And it was only at that point that I ended up coming back to this world. I realized that I was no longer gaining access to those higher levels. And this had pretty much been explained to me that I was not there to stay. Uh, and it was in the setting of those six faces that I came back to this world because it was the sixth face uh, that really brought terror to me. The amnesia had allowed me to be quite fearless through the entire journey. And yet at the uh, very end of it, the sixth face I saw was the face of a 10 year old boy just so happened to be my son Bond. And uh, as I said, my amnesia did not allow me to remember who this was. 
And yet it turned out that was that Sunday morning, seventh day of coma. He had been outside and had overheard a conversation between my doctors and family where my doctor said I'd gone from a 10% chance of survival at the beginning of the week down to a 2% chance of survival uh, with no chance of recovery. And when Bond heard that, he came running down the hallway to my ICU room, held open my eyes. I was on the ventilator being ventilated 12 times a minute, as I had been for the whole week. Uh, and as he did so, he was pleading with me, Daddy, you're going to be okay. Daddy, you're going to be okay. And somehow that got through to me. And so as the sixth phase that I saw uh, in that experience, um, he was pleading with me. And even though I did not understand the words, I could sense that incredible love and connection between our souls. And I did not know who he was. But that sensing of that deep and profound connection is what then led me uh, to know I had to come back to this world, even though I had no idea at that time what this world was. And so it was a very strange and, and actually terrifying aspect of the experience was this choice to come back to this world because of my connection to Bond. And of course, I'm sure your listeners are not missing the fact that his name Bond had much more relevance than I knew at that time. Uh, but Bond was really my link to this world. And that was the reason I came back with my love for that other being. Uh, and then, of course, the rest unfolded as I came back and all my memories started to return uh, to try and make sense of it all. But the interesting thing is those memories from the deep coma experience, uh, which seemed way too real to be real when they happened, those memories are as sharp today as they were right when I woke up from coma. They have not faded at all with time. Most people, they question, you know, who am I or what should I do with my life or, or questions like that. Didn't you have those thoughts when you were in the coma, when you forgot who you used to be? Didn't you ask yourself, who am I now or who am I? The amnesia was a very important part of the overall package. And that amnesia allowed for a certain kind of unpacking of the information understanding in the months after coma. Um, now, I, I gained tremendous realization of all of sentient life throughout the universe and the really big picture of sentience and of our uh, material incarnations and of reincarnation and of how uh, this is a, a vast evolution of consciousness going on throughout the universe that we are all part of. And that was really the big, gigantic realization that came to me and that has continued to evolve throughout this entire nine years since my coma as I come to a deeper understanding of it all. Uh, and yes, in these ensuing nine years, especially meditating for an hour or two a day for the last seven years, uh, I've gotten deeply into all those questions of existence about the why we're here and, and what this is all about. <clears throat> But what was presented to me deep in coma was really the background to truly set the stage for that understanding. And that was not simply, you know, Evan Alexander's little life and, and what that was about, even though much of that has become clear to me as all of this has unfolded. And that is much of what we go into in that third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Heart of Consciousness, co-written with my life partner, Karen Newell who is also the co-founder of Sacred Acoustics. Uh, but that is where we go into this very extensive and profound journey of discovery about the nature of why we're here and what this is all about 
and how we can each come to a deeper understanding of our connection and oneness with the universe by going within. So it's been a tremendous journey of kind of unfolding uh, discovery of the nature of reality and of purpose and meaning in this life. Uh, but it didn't all come just as a package just with the NDE itself. The NDE presented incredible evidence that completely destroyed my old false materialist worldview. Uh, but then it was up to me to start assembling the pieces of how to come to an understanding of it. And that's what has been involved in these last nine years. I've read many reports of NDEs and uh, many who have had an NDE experience, especially if they've been brought up in a Christian society, you know, they might meet Jesus or they, when they're convinced it was Jesus they met. But also, also at the same time, when they're having the experience, they come to the understanding that there is something like reincarnation. So I think it's interesting that for these people like the Jesus and reincarnation are completely compatible but in our world Christianity doesn't have reincarnation it's Buddhism and Hinduism so I think it's interesting for near death experiences that these two so-called religions are connected yeah well I that that raises a very important point I mean to me in my journey the the first lesson that was profoundly uh, thrust upon me was the knowing that consciousness is eternal, that it's not created by the brain at all. In fact, we're, uh, the life we lead here in this material realm is more dreamlike than the life we lead in that spiritual realm between lives where it's far more crisp, sharp, real, uh, you know, everything is just dripping with meaning. Uh, and this world that we live in, our material world, Our normal waking consciousness is very dreamlike by comparison. Now, so that was the first big lesson was that the brain is not creating consciousness, but actually limiting down. Uh, and so reincarnation was a very obvious uh, lesson of my journey. It was also something that was the only way to make sense of the infinite healing power of love of that God, of that deity, combined with the omniscience and the omnipotence, an all-powerful God, how could that allow for the, the travesties in life, and especially for me, the example of the suffering of innocence, like children and animals, how could that be allowed by such a powerful, all-loving God um, if, if uh, we only had one incarnation? It made zero sense. And so uh, it was a way of reconciling that infinitely powerful and loving deity was to understand that uh, reincarnation is absolutely a part of the package. And of course, then I came back to this world and realized that the scientific evidence for reincarnation is quite strong. Look at the uh, University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies under the work of Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker, where since the 1960s, they've documented more than 2,500 cases of past life memories in children where the most ready explanation is that of reincarnation. Um, in fact, uh, for those Christians who might stumble over this, I will point out that in fact, uh, reincarnation was a fundamental part of original Christianity. There's a great book on that. There are many good books on that, but one I can recommend is by Dr. Herbert Perrier, and it's entitled Why Jesus Taught Reincarnation. And it's all about how original Christianity was completely compatible with reincarnation, and that, in fact, that was shifted up by the Council of Nicaea and Constantine and others 
who gave us our more modern form of Christianity that was not the original form uh, that had included reincarnation. And of course, reincarnation is very accepted by many of the great faiths of the world, as you pointed out. Um, and I, I would say that uh, uh, it's an important part of the concepts because otherwise you cannot make sense of this. If you continue to buy into the Christianity that, that I was taught growing up in a Methodist church in North Carolina, which was one incarnation, then eternal heaven or hell. Well, even the concept of eternal hell makes zero sense from my experience and from many other NDEs, because this is soul school. This is where we're here to learn and teach these lessons of love. And there was no way coming back from my journey that I could envision that that deity, that God, would allow for any soul to be condemned for an eternity in hell. That just made no sense at all. And so reincarnation, again, and it's not the cold mechanistic wheel of reincarnation from Buddhism, but a much more enlightened and grace-filled form of reincarnation that involves soul school, that this is all about learning. It's basically a process of the evolution of consciousness along the lines of uh, taught by uh, Taylor de Chardin, the mid-20th century, in, in The Phenomenon of Man, uh, this notion that all of consciousness is evolving towards some higher, uh, what he called a, a Christ energy or um, um, kind of a zero point of, of, uh, of pure love and oneness uh, with the creative force of the universe. And I believe that's more the picture that is conveyed by modern NDEs. And this is something that, again, is, com is very compatible with the fundamental tenets of all the great faiths, I would say of the mystical traditions of Christianity, of Kabbalism, Jewish mysticism, of Sufism, Islamic mysticism, Buddhism, Hinduism, Shintoism, Zoroastrianism, whatever your faith that you choose, deep buried inside of it is this mystical tradition of that incredible connection and oneness and love at the core of the universe. And this uh, is kind of the universal principle that I think is emerging today from near-death experiences. And, and it's not to replace our modern religions, but I would say that any aspect of our modern religion that tends to um, promote separation and a hierarchy and a better-than uh, mentality is false. That the aspects of our religions that promote our oneness, our connectedness, that we are all one in love and through consciousness— part of one mind, those aspects of religion are right on the mark. But the parts that separate us and try to lead to conflict, uh, those are false. And those are what we need to leave behind. And that's part of the awakening that near-death experiences are bringing to this world, because the old status quo is not working. We really need to awaken. It's time to shift this up and learn the lessons we're here to learn and then proceed into that uh, evolution of consciousness that Taylor de Chardin talked about. I guess it's, it's what you say, because if you think about it, Jesus kind of died and reincarnated, even though he reincarnated in the same body. Right. I mean, the, and that reincarnation itself is, is a very interesting question, because I would say that, that uh, reincarnation, even if it's presented in the Bible— uh, was really one of a light body reincarnation, that is an energy body reincarnation, and not a physical body reincarnation of Christ. And that's why I think they make such a big deal, say in the book of John, for example, uh, that Christ appeared to his uh, disciples after uh, the crucifixion, 
um, in a house with locked doors and windows. I mean, the point they were making is his light body was able to enter that space without physically coming through a door or window. And um, that is exactly the kind of vision that is promoted today in near-death experiences, in after-death communications, in deathbed visions, where people often see the souls of departed loved ones coming to escort them to the other side. Um, that is all about uh, a light body presence. So uh, our physical body is not what it appears to be. In fact, the entire uh, physical realm is very much uh, Maya or not as it appears or an illusion in some sense, even though I would say it's a very important part of the world. In fact, I'd say the whole universe exists to support this illusion of our material existence, because this is where we learn, teach the lessons of love, compassion, forgiveness that we are here to learn and teach today. These few thousand years, that's the main lesson for humanity to learn, and we have not learned it yet. So it is time to awaken to that lesson of all the great prophets. I would say, whether you're talking about Christ or Buddha, uh, Muhammad, uh, they were all teachers of love and of compassion, of mercy, that this is uh, uh, an existence that we share together with the grace of a power, powerful spiritual force. We are really the co-creators of that world. And I think this is kind of the, the vision of spirituality and humanity that is emerging uh, from uh, NDEs and all these other experiences that are helping to shape our synthesis of science and all of our religious systems into a much higher and uh, more efficient uh, form of understanding the nature of the universe and reality and why we are here. So uh, a person who is living a life and doing a lot of horrible things and never has any regrets and they die, what would you say happens to them? Do they have to like, you, you know, you failed every test, you have to live a new life or how would the process be for those people? Well, what they have to do, everyone, uh, when they leave this physical body uh, has to go through a life review. Uh, life review is not some new age concept. I mean, the, uh, Plato wrote about life reviews 2,400 years ago uh, in his uh Uh, in the Republic, where he talks about Ur, the Armenian soldier killed in battle, uh, who was laid up on a funeral pyre, and right before they lit it up, uh, he came back to life. And boy, did he have a story to tell. But the main features of that story is when you die, you go through a review of the most important salient features of your life that still might offer lessons about the good and bad of you and of your choices in life. Uh, and you, the interesting thing about a life review is it's very complete. Even though it can seem to just last a fraction of a second, it involves every important good and bad event that is still uh, there available to teach you lessons. So that, for example, someone who, someone who handed out pain and suffering to others, uh, they have to feel the effect of that. They become the victim of their own actions and thoughts, and they have to feel it. So, in other words, the very boundaries of self uh, blur and disappear, and you start to realize in the life review that this is really kind of the one mind, the, the oversoul doing its evolution uh, through this apparent compartmentalization into multiple um, beings that live these lives. So if you've handed out pain and suffering, you have to feel the brunt of that in the life review. And for someone who has lived a pretty uh, evil life, that would be a hell. The thing is, it's not permanent. 
It is what you go through as a rectification. Feeling the pain that you have caused others is an important corrective uh, so that the suffering that you dealt out to others, you then have to feel the impact of. And that is there to help you shape that next life. That's all done uh, in the presence of your higher, where you've reunited with the higher soul and with your soul group, and in the infinite loving light of that God, you the higher soul is what does the judging. We're not judged by some um, ulterior uh, God force or something. We're judged by our own higher soul in the presence of the soul group. And that is what allows us to then plan the next incarnations that we come in and do together. And another important p- part about that is that the hardships in life uh, like the illnesses and injury, those are part of our plan. So we actually, with the higher soul group, plan those things to set the stage for the lessons we're going to learn in the next incarnation. And this is why it's really a process of growth and learning. Uh, there's a deep sense, in my, from my view, of, of karma uh, or of justice. Um, you know, that old thinking uh, that I had been taught growing up in the Christian church that you could be a pretty hellish person giving lots of pain and suffering to others. And then if it, towards the end of your life, if you admitted a belief in Christ that that was a free ticket into heaven. I mean, how nonsensical is that? There's no way that happens. Not in this universe. It's a very just universe. We reap what we sow. So if we've been handing out a lot of pain and suffering to other people, you bet we're going to feel the absolute pain and horror of that on ourselves in our life review. But that is all part of the corrective mechanism of learning so that in coming up with those next incarnations with our soul groups, we can move on to deeper lessons and uh, hopefully learn from everything that we've experienced in life. But the life review is a very important part of that. And that is an important way of saying that nobody gets out of here scot-free, you know, having caused pain and suffering to other people. We must feel the impact of that in that life review if we haven't made amends for it in life. Uh, In fact, my uh, partner, Karen Newell, often talks about doing a daily review just so you don't get stuck with all that horrible emotional baggage when you finally leave this world. And that's why it's so important to make amends while in this lifetime to anyone that we affected with not only our actions, but even our thoughts. I agree with everything you say, but sometimes I... Because sometimes I'm too intellectual for my own good. And sometimes if I do a good deed without... not you know not for a reason to help me back just helping somebody so they feel good i still get this thought that you know is this uh, it's kind of like it will benefit me as well so is it really is it really pure you know it, it it should be you know i wish i didn't know about any of all these things you said because then it would feel more real do you understand what i'm trying to say well, i understand what you're saying but believe me it's it's still it still can feel mighty good when you get this kind of message and start handing out uh lots of love uh and compassion and mercy for others because that's the very best way to uh to really recover the love of the divine for each and every one of us the best way to love ourselves is really to love others to serve as a conduit for that love and allow it to just flow through us. And there's nothing fake about it at all. In fact, I'd say the most ancient message uh, from spiritual traditions uh, is do unto others as you would have done unto you. And of course, the reason that's so important is we are all truly part of one mind. Uh, I would say that one mind is the mind of God, and we are all 
all part of that one mind. So to hurt someone else is hurting myself. Uh, and that's why uh, this deep understanding of the oneness that we all share, uh, that we are all in this together. We are all brothers and sisters and have a certain responsibility to take care of each other. And most important are the least, the last, and the lost. Uh, we're all here to do that care for others. And it's really the very best way of caring for ourselves. So I would say there's absolutely nothing fake uh, or uh, artificial about that love at all. And, and your point that you made earlier that sometimes you may be a little too intellectual about all this, I think that's an important point. We, we think that we can use our linguistic brain and our rational thought and logical reasoning powers to get to any kind of truth about the universe. Well, some of the truth, the deepest truth is really emotional truth. Uh, and, it, and it has to do with our really living richly uh, the very uh, resonance of this universe. Um, and, and so that really is where this going within is so important. And what I mentioned earlier about the tools for going within, using things like sacred acoustics, uh, tones to get into a deep transcendental conscious state are a very powerful way to reconnect with that one mind to come to realize how we all do have overlap in our kind of conscious emotional existence, uh, that we are part of one a grand mind that is evolving. And uh, this is where this love becomes very real. But it's not something that we logically think our way to it. And that's why meditation can be such an important tool, because in meditation, we learn to recognize that voice in our head, our thoughts, is not who we are at all. And do not be confused into thinking that your thoughts are your consciousness. The mystery of consciousness, the part that is so challenging to modern science uh, and the addressing of the mind-body discussion, um, that whole deep mystery is the awareness, the observer. And that's the part you can develop deep in meditation, is the observer self. And the observer is far grander. Uh, the observer is really one. And the observer can easily look at that little linguistic voice in the head and the thoughts that are going through it and all the little petty concerns of the ego, and that observer self uh, can witness it from the proper perspective and kind of separate, in a sense, to realize that all those thoughts and all of that kind of racing monkey mind and the voice of the ego, which can mainly use anxiety and fear as its tools, uh, is all kind of a, a shadow game that's there to distract us and take our attention away from who we truly are and what we are truly here to do. And it's that observer self that you can grow in deep meditation to becoming far grander because that observer is attached with everything in this universe. In fact, you can observe, take that observer within and view it uh, as the self-awareness of the entire universe. Uh, and, and especially as we get into the mystery of the measurement paradox in quantum physics and deeper understanding of consciousness, we come to realize the importance of that observer uh, as truly what exists. And that is the part that I will tell you is very much liberated when the brain and body die. Uh, that observer self becomes far more aware and uh, grander and one with the universe. And that, of course, is what near-death experiences have been trying to tell us for thousands of years. So if you manage to listen to the observer better, is that when your intuition increases? Well, I would say yes, that's very much it. In, in other words, just open your awareness that the universe can tell you much more about who you are and what this is all about. But that has to do with, first and foremost, 
realizing uh, the Maya, uh, the supreme illusion, um, as Karen and I put it in that book, Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, coming out October 2017, uh, we will get into great detail about that illusion, how in fact no human being has ever experienced anything other than an internal construct, a mental construct that's supposed to be a model that represents something that is out there, but the mistake is believing that the physical world uh, is independent of us and is some ongoing reality following natural laws, uh, because in fact that is false. We are one with this universe. There is no separation of observer and observed. And, and this is uh, one of the deepest gifts that comes from meditation, is coming to live that truth and know that truth most deeply. And it gives us great power to then uh, influence our lives and, and have a connection with other minds, with the higher souls of others with whom we are dealing in our daily lives, uh, and coming to, to learn so much more about what our purpose on earth is, uh, recovering memories of past lives, things like that. All this can be built into uh, an extensive and regular practice of going within. Sometimes I get the sense that whoever made the choice of me having this life, even though I have had tragedy like everybody has had some sort of tragedy, I still feel like I've given a life that's spoiled. You know, I haven't grown up as a child prostitute in the, some ghetto in Mumbai or something like that. You know, we have food, we have shelter and, you know, we have problems, but not compared to a majority of the world. One thing I would point out uh, is, and this is something uh, that I, I mentioned towards the end of uh, Proof of Heaven, uh, where I quote Cicero, um, who said that gratitude is not only the most important of virtues, but it's the parent of all other virtues. And I would say that a, a focus on gratitude for every breath as a gift, every bit of our existence is a gift. And uh, uh, I would say especially the focus in our modern culture on wealth and on material goods is very distracting and misleading away from the truth. The truth is much deeper and more beautiful about our role of being here, and it does involve tremendous gratitude for that existence. And, and part of this gratitude is that expression of love for self by loving others. Uh, and this uh, uh, gratitude has, is a boundless source of energy for this kind of awakening and knowing. So I would say first and foremost, uh, you know, in, enhance your uh, gratitude to resentment ratio uh, to unprecedented levels, because that's the, the only appropriate response to every breath we take in this existence is, is gratitude for all the gifts of this life. And especially we, when we can take that bigger observer view, uh, which I cultivated heavily through meditation, that allows us to step outside of the uh, maya or the illusory nature of, of this existence uh, and realize that all of that material wealth and everything means zero. Uh, it really has no, the only value of any kind of material wealth is what we can do to enhance all of this world for others. It has nothing to do with this selfish kind of egotistical application of wealth in our own lives. Uh, but the power of such wealth is how we uh, share it with the world and help the less fortunate and bring this world up to a higher level through our own efforts. Uh, and that, I think, uh, is, is a crucial part of the lesson of this gratitude and of this awakening uh, to the connectedness with the one mind. What do you think about praying or wishing somebody 
to be feeling better, but you don't meet the person or you don't know who it is. Does that have any effect or is that just fluff? Yes. Uh, I mean, there have been some studies done with that kind of um, uh, intercessory prayer, you know, among people that uh, the prayer doesn't know who was prayed for, etc., uh, that have showed, and not only in a praying for health situation, but even in strange situations like germination of seeds and things like that, it's been shown that prayer can have tremendous effect. And I think this is really just a great example of showing how our beliefs have tremendous power. Uh, and in fact, what you'll find is most of the impact of our beliefs in our modern world is very limiting and constricting and falsely uh, limiting our view of ourselves and what we can do. And, and much of this kind of awakening to the power of consciousness is realizing that those limited beliefs are false uh, and that we have far greater power over our lives and over uh, the health of self and others. And prayer is a beautiful way to demonstrate this. Uh, and, and prayer, first and foremost, can have a profound effect in our own health but it also can affect the health of others. Uh, now, another benefit of, of going within and this kind of power of deep meditation, which for me is always a form of centering prayer, is also access to uh, tremendous information. Um, for example, uh, Einstein would uh, kind of daydream uh, in a sailboat, and just in his daydreams, he would have these incredible visions that helped him with his uh, notions of physics. Thomas Alva Edison, one of the greatest invent, uh, inventors in, in American history, uh, would hold weights and he'd get very sleepy and let the weights drop in his hands. And he'd uh, do three or four uh, bits with that kind of weight dropping as he fell asleep. And in that hypnagogic space, he would have tremendous revelations and creative insights. Uh, Salvador Dali and uh, Mozart and uh, other great inventors, artists, uh, have used certain techniques to access that incredible creativity offered from the universe by going within to our uh, mind and kind of transcending that veil. So there's tremendous power that comes to us through this kind of deep meditation and coming to realize that consciousness is universal and that we can get in touch with that uh, one mind, that universal mind, uh, to our great benefit in terms of uh, understanding our lives, the kind of kind of controlling the events in our lives, including our health and the health of others, uh, as well as creative insights. So there's tremendous value in recognizing this new model of kind of the one mind and how we can access it. To get all the details, I'm sure people should read your books, but could you briefly just explain or tell how how it looks on the other side? You know, Does it have anything, any similarities with our world or is it completely different. Now remember that it's multi-layered. Um, uh, you know, there, it's not like there's just one little heaven and that's all you get. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, this is multi-layered. In fact, it's far more complex than our observable universe. Um, our observable universe is a relatively minor uh, kind of uh, small uh, imprint compared to that realm. Um, now, for me, the journey started in a very primitive, coarse, unresponsive realm called the earthworm eye view that was like being underground. Um, but then through the musical notes of the melody that came to me, um, this beautiful portal opened up into this rich, ultra-real gateway valley that was filled with light, very lush, and all 
full of creativity. There were no signs of death and decay. I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing with millions of other butterflies looping and swirling in vast spiraling formations. And below us, this, this lovely valley, verdant, lush, fertile with life, with thousands of, of souls dancing. I describe them as dressed in simple peasant garb, but very uh, animated, alive, vibrant, uh, lots of dancing going on, children playing, dogs jumping, incredible festivities all being fueled because up above were swooping choirs of angels delivering these angelic hymns, chants, anthems that would thunder through me and just awaken me to the power and awe and majesty of that beautiful divine love, that force at the core of it all that drives all of creation throughout this universe. And on that butterfly wing, the beautiful girl who proved to be such a mystery to me, I remember her perfectly uh, as if I had seen her this morning. And yet when I first came out of coma, I recognized that she was not somebody I had ever met in my life. And of course, those who have read Proof of Heaven will realize the important role that that uh, guardian angel on the butterfly wing served for me. Uh, but that realm, which was very earth-like in many ways, but also very deeply spiritual, that is a perfect example of how uh, in that realm, we don't see with the eyes, we don't hear with the ears, we become the entire experience as part of our knowing of it. And so the bandwidth is gigantic. It's like drinking through a fire hose. This is why explaining these experiences in earthly language is impossible. You cannot do it. Uh, because, you know, normally when we acquire information with things that we see with the eyes or uh, sounds that we hear with the ears or we feel things with our touch, etc., uh, it's all very limited and confined. The bandwidth is extremely narrow. When we've crossed the veil in those realms, like in a near-death experience, it is wide open, full bore. And in fact, it, it parts in the higher realms. I remember uh, ascending to the core realm, infinite inky blackness filled to overflowing with the entire higher dimensional multiverse was this complex overfill like a ball, like a ball there uh, for some of the lessons to be offered to me. And I would become the entire multiverse as part of the lessons being taught. So that is an example of how profoundly different our acquisition of information is in that realm compared to this realm. And it's one of the reasons it's so impossible to put this into words and try and explain it to people. And that's why instead of just trying to tell people what it's like, uh, our approach now, Karen Newell and my approach, is to help people get there. As a conscious, sentient being, you don't have to wait for that near-death experience. You can experience it yourself by going deep within. Although I must confess, over these seven years of intensive daily one- to two-hour meditation of going within, I have not yet fully duplicated that full-blown ultra-reality that I experienced in that uh, Gateway Valley and in the core realm. And it could be that... Uh, to regain that complete ultra-reality, I have to wait to the next time when my brain is that completely disengaged from my mind to allow me to fully experience that ultra-reality again. Does everybody have to reincarnate, or can you choose to not and stay in that realm? And if you can't choose, I mean, who, who are the people who, are, who don't reincarnate that you said you saw? I believe that all souls reincarnate as a progression towards oneness with the divine, and therefore kind of a litmus test of how evolved a soul is, is how egotistical they are. So in other words, a very egotistical, self-centered, greedy, selfish person is very early on in the game. Now, they're not going to have a choice whether or not to reincarnate. They 
they're going to be going through their experience in their effort to try and grow so that in their next incarnation, they will make a lot more progress and get up into a very altruistic uh, giving oneness state. Mother Teresa would be an example of someone who's a very advanced soul, who's probably very close to never needing to reincarnate again. But it's all about that becoming one and, and knowing the oneness and that we are all part of that one mind, that one God. And the more we approach that in our lives here on earth, the more we uh, get uh, to a point where we, uh, from my point of view, are probably moving beyond the need for that aspect of soul to be involved in any kind of a reincarnation process. So it's really that whole evolution and growth that is involved. Uh, and we, we have the choices of how we can learn and evolve and grow and teach. Uh, but uh, as I often say in my presentations, nobody gets out of here dead. You're not, uh, from my point of view, going to have the option to just opt out, be a greedy, selfish person, say, well, I've had it with all this. I didn't like that life review. It was too hellish for me. I'm not going back in. I don't think that happens. I think our souls are chomping at the bit to get into these bodies, to live these incarnations, to grow and ascend towards oneness with the divine. So I don't think we opt out at all. But that self-centeredness is a sign that you're very early on in the game. You have many incarnations to go. So you better buck up and start making amends in this lifetime uh, and, and try and get with this program uh, as well as you can. Otherwise, you'll be wasting this incarnation. But most people don't remember past lives. So how can they know they should improve and not like just repeat what they did in the previous life? Well, part of it is that in between lives, we have a lot of knowledge of that and we can set it all up. And that's why between lives, reuniting with our higher soul and with the soul group and with that oneness with the divine that's so apparent as we go through that life review, um, that is what enables us to set the stage for the next incarnation. So those hardships and difficulties will be planned appropriately. And then, of course, we enter that life and we are there to grow through those challenges. And what that means is through the hardships, we are to recover the love and oneness that we share with God and with all others. And the more we can recover that and grow in a given incarnation, the more progress we make. So it really is, is part of paying attention uh, to all of that. But, of course, this is the reason why we don't have such memory. There is a program forgetting. Uh, because if we had all the knowledge of the higher soul that we have between lives coming into these incarnations, if we had perfect memory for all that, then we wouldn't have the same skin in the game and the same emotional buy-in. Um, and, and so, uh, in effect, it's that beautiful dance between kind of the observer, the, uh, the objective kind of universal mind view of it all, and the view of the incarnate uh, that is somewhat limited. Um, especially if we haven't gone into meditation and going within and we're, we're, we're very kind of dulled into thinking that the Maya, the illusion is real and it's the only reality, then we can really, um, you know, have some trouble struggling to get some of those deeper truths. But in meditation and prayer, we can recover some of that knowing of our higher soul and connection with a higher soul. And that's what can help us grow and evolve uh, best in these lifetimes is that kind of delicate balance between the observer self and the, the self that buys into the incarnation that we're living uh, in this lifetime. So please uh, mention your books again and your latest book and also where people can buy them. Okay, well for one thing you can learn more about me if you go to ebenalexander.com that's E-B is in Baker E-N-Alexander.com um, 
and you can get the books pretty much uh, anywhere. Go to Amazon, uh, go to uh, whatever bookstore. Uh, the, the books are out there. Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife, published 2012, was the first book. Second book was The Map of Heaven, How Science, Religion, and Ordinary People Are Proving the Afterlife. That came out in 2014. Uh, and as I said, coming out October 17th of 2017, uh, my third book, co-authored with my life partner, Karen Newell, uh, Living in a Mindful Universe, uh, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Heart of Consciousness, where we will go into far more detail about this worldview and about how all this fits together, how we are facing an awakening of humanity that is unprecedented. This will involve a complete synthesis of science and spirituality in very uh, deep ways, um, uh, world peace is certainly within our grasp, but it is our duty to wake up. And that is what this awakening is all about. And in spite of all the hardships and difficulties people see in the world, uh, I can tell you that to me, all of it is very positive because uh, the, the signs of awakening and of love uh, are going to overpower uh, a lot of the rises in fundamentalisms, which is kind of a recoil, a last gasp, if you will, uh, as those fundamentalisms die off, because they are a barbaric and ancient uh, form, a very primitive form of consciousness that has no uh, reality in our current evolving mindset. And this is part of the awakening coming to us now. Uh, I would also recommend for those who want to get into meditation, uh, go to sacredacoustics.com. Uh, there are free downloads there and some instructional videos that are very helpful to get people into deep transcendental conscious states. And that's the best way to get into all of this. Uh, and I look forward to hearing from uh, your listeners. They can reach out to me through ebonalexander.com. Uh, and uh, this world is waking up and uh, that couldn't be better news for all of us. Great. Uh, thanks a lot for taking the time to talk to me. Well, thank you, Alex. I appreciate this very much. It's been great talking with you and hopefully we'll talk again sometime soon. The URL of Dr. Eben Alexander's website is ebenalexander.com. That's E-B-E-N alexander.com. Considering the topic we have covered in this episode, I felt it would be good for the mind and the soul to close with some beautiful piano music. The piece is called Opus 2 in G-sharp minor and is made by Station Approach from an album called Noodlings. Check them out at chasingfoxes.bandcamp.com. Also have a look at wordshaveedges.bandcamp.com, which is the same artist. If you have any suggestions for something you would like me to talk about in a future episode, uh, just drop me a line and or connect with the podcast in social media. All the links you need is available at naturalbornalchemist.com. Next Sunday, my guest is the co-author of Dr. Alexander's book, Living in a Mindful Universe, Karen Newell. And uh, we will, amongst many things, talk about brainwaves, sacred acoustics, and explore the realms of consciousness. Freedom is in the mind.